Bloodbath and Beyond, episode 24. I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. And today, crimes against podcasting are increasing by 400% because we're talking about John Carpenter's Escape from New York. It's action and horror, it's horror and action, it's Bert and Casey, it's Casey and Bert. Bloodbath and Beyond. Uh, well, this is our second John Carpenter review. Mm-hmm. The first being, well, our, was that our initial episode? They Live? No, that was episode two. That was episode two. Oh, yeah. Um, Last Stand was our first episode. That's right. Last Stand was. Yeah, that was like, uh, gosh, over a year ago. I think we like to pretend that the la- that, uh, <laughs> They Live was our first. Yeah. <laughs> the the other one was just a pilot, you know? Yeah, just, yeah. Just to get it out there. Hey, we're still finding our way. Yeah. We're still finding our way. So let's get into let's get right into uh, Escape from New York. Well, you know, just like they live, I really, really adore this movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's a I think it's a blast of uh, a cult film. It's definitely stood the test of time in, in many ways, not not in every like technological way, and kind of the the premise, of course, the time frame, maybe a little outdated. Yeah, well, I I wanted to address that right away because uh, first of all, the 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 prologue is set in 1988, yeah. where we were, we are informed that the crime rate in the U.S. has risen 400 percent, and that in order to compensate for this, the government decides just to turn the the entirety of New York City into a giant prison, with a 50 foot containment wall all around it. Yeah. Uh, well, Manhattan it, Island. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, and you know, along the Jersey Shore and so on. Uh, but we are then informed that we fl- we have flashed forward to 1997. Now. Now. <laughs> All right. This movie and was written in 1976, and it was mm-hmm. it wasn't even filmed until uh, it didn't 81. 81. Yeah, that's when it came out. The summer of 81. So you gotta take that with a grain of salt. Sure, but I, I always think it's a bit of a mistake for science fiction films to uh, to set themselves in an age where the people that see them are likely going to live to see that day. Yeah, and like other uh, another movie set in 1997, where that was supposed to be some not-too-far-distant future, they decided to make it futuristic by putting every gun, or equipping every gun with a, a really useless scope. <laughs> or a laser pointer. It's like, it's the future, of course. Lasers and scopes. It's like, what are you going to do with a laser on a revolver? It, it just looks really silly. Hey, it's 1997. I got a laser on my gun. I still don't have a flying car. You know, yeah, we got to cut a few corners. But we're getting there. <laughs> Hoverboards are right around the corner, you know. Uh, yeah, well, so were the self-tying sneakers. I'll believe it when I see it. I want me a hoverboard. I want me some self-tying sneakers. I'm known for not tying my shoes. I can, I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, this is a pretty simple film as far as the plot goes. Um, the president is an Air Force One. Uh, the he's on the way to a giant conference between China and Russia, whom we are at war with, uh, in which he's going to talk about. Something <laughs> they don't really nuclear don't really... non-proliferation or something. Yeah, they 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 make a big deal out of this tape that 
he has with him that's tied to his arm like a nuclear football. A cassette tape. A cassette tape, yes. Uh, which, you know, high 90s uh, science fiction. Uh, but he has this cassette tape that is going to be tied to a suitcase on his arm. And on this suitcase, well, really the suitcase is just a MacGuffin, as uh, Alfred Hitchcock would say, because we never really know what's on that tape. All we hear about it is, what do you know about cold fusion? <laughs> so, for some reason, cold fusion is gonna would be enough to end this war, presumably, mm. uh, at one conference. But whatever's on the tape, we we don't know. We never know. Uh, the point is that the president goes down inside his his plane is crashed into uh, the Manhattan maximum security prison city, and they send in a criminal, another criminal, to try to rescue him. Uh, Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell. Yeah, he's a former special forces. A.K.A. Green Beret, who flew the Gulf Fire over the Leningrad. Something like that. It reminds me of uh, Roy Batty's speech at the end of uh, Blade Runner, where he refers yeah. to, like, sea beams on the porch tower or something. Well, this movie, uh, Blade Runner use, reuses a lot of sets from Escape from New York. They just repaint them. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, this, <laughs> yeah, this came out <laughs> before it, yeah. They built that cityscape, I guess. They were like, we're going to get our money's worth. Uh, in fact, the only scene that is filmed in New York in this entire movie is uh, a quick shot of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, they were able to film there, Liberty Island at night. And James Cameron, a very young James Cameron, was a matte painter on this movie. What did you think about some of that early CGI? <laughs> oh, like the monochromatic like wireframes? Oh, I'm not even talking about those because you know those were not even actual 3D imagery. Oh, really? Yeah. No, um, they they thought they they wanted to do it as 3D imagery. The the wireframes that they show inside the the helicopter. Yeah. Uh, like because they they make a schematic map, but it turned out they didn't have the budget at that point to do wireframe because it was really expensive in 1981. So the special effects designers uh, they made a model of New York City and painted it black and put bright white tape on the buildings and a grid and then moved the camera through the city, the model town. I say that actually worked pretty well. Oh yeah. You, Cause you can't tell. You but, can't tell. I didn't know that. <laughs> but so that seems like, that seems like an awful long way to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, like a couple of those early match shots, like composite shots aren't that great, but I, I think some of the ones with miniatures really hold up. Mm-hmm. This movie was only made. For six million dollars, yeah. And what would that be nothing. today? Like fifteen million? That's still uh, peanuts. Is is this also the start of the uh, of the great John Carpenter Kurt Russell period? It is not because they made a TV movie about Elvis like two years before this. Okay. Yeah. For Kurt but Russell far, was Elvis. Okay, but as far as the movies go, yeah. This is this is where we 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 uh, and, jump in here. This is actually kind of a big shift because you and I, the way we've grown up, we've known Kurt Russell is doing a lot of these action movies, some more serious ones. Or if it's Definitely. A, yeah. Up until this time, Escape from New York, he was known as a big Disney star. He was like one of the most bankable stars for like 20 years. What Disney movies was he in? I can't name them off the top of my head, but he's been a Disney kid. He was a Disney kid since he was like five or something. See, his dad oh, wow. was a his dad was a character actor. Who was on a lot of westerns like um, The Virginia and uh, Bonanza, Gunsmoke. In so fact, he's, he's probably in a lot of those movies you would see on like late night Disney Channel in the '90s, where uh, it would it wouldn't be like it'd be like the you know, like the Vault Disney, I guess. 
where they'd show you like you know like it'd be like weird TV movies in between Zorro yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't know the Scarecrow. Yeah, I you know I just thought about it, but um, remember in Death Proof where Kurt Russell, a stuntman, Mike is referring to all these TV shows he was a stuntman on. I think those are all things his dad was on. Huh. So a, a little bit of a little bit of trivia, maybe some meta humor, but sure, that, well, that would have been a clever touch. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like if Zac Efron became our big action star, <laughs> right? Like a couple of years from now, it's kind of like that. Or even Justin Timberlake, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, Justin Timberlake. Well, he kind of is now. He's he's made a few more serious movies. But you know, I digress. You know, so that that was a big shift for uh, Kurt Russell, and believe it or not, this movie was you know a, a pretty big hit given its budget. Mm-hmm. So. It, yeah, it it uh, made five times its budget. So yeah. good on it. And probably a lot more in DVD sales net since then. So yeah, and this is a summer where I think what Empire Strikes Back or Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Yeah, eighty one's a pretty eighty one and eighty two are pretty big years so, for yeah. for cult film. Yeah, it had some competition. I can't say the same for the thing doing well financially. You know, at the time of its release, just a well, year it, later, it it ran against E. T. Yeah, E. T. <laughs> and uh, oh god. Uh, was it Rocky Three? I think came out in '82. I want to say Wrath of Khan. Yeah, Wrath of Khan. Those were all big so, hits. So again, you know, you have the you have these uh, these a traditional sci-fi film like Wrath of Khan. Uh, you have a you have the friendliest depiction of an alien that's ever existed in ET, and then you have the Thing, which is maybe the most vile body horror alien <laughs> film. <laughs> Even 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 past you know the boundaries of alien or aliens. Yeah, like the real trolls, gorehounds, and we love that one. <laughs> I, in fact, uh, you know we we love bringing up Ebert reviews. Ebert called it one of the most vile films he'd ever seen at the time, and he hated it. it so. He called it like just a barf bag of a movie. I think he yeah. used that term. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, but, uh, Roger. It's... Oh, anyways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to comment, though, on uh, something I was surprised about, because I haven't seen Escape from New York for a long time. Obviously, when I first got into John Carpenter, I made a point of seeing all his movies, but that was uh, that was in my teen years. So coming back to this movie now, I was very surprised by just the caliber of the cast in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of great character actors all over this thing. Yeah, Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, as the cabbie, uh, Lee Van Cleef. The villain from the, the the bad in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Angel eyes. He plays. Uh, he plays the uh, the man that sends Pliskin on his mission. Yeah, he's he's the ex special ops guy who went straight, who who remained straight. I'll say that. That's right. He's he's well cast here too. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, his his associate uh, Tom Atkins, mm-hmm. uh, best known for being the guy with the mustache in Night of the Creeps and uh, Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. He's in another Carpenter movie. I think it's uh, Prince of Darkness. That's that's likely. Yeah, that's I think likely. he's in that one. Um, Isaac Hayes as the Duke of New York. <laughs> yep. And uh, Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're forgetting Adrian Barbeau. Well, who could? I, <laughs> who could forget? I was counting on you there. Uh, she was married. I think she was married to Carpenter at the time. So they were married a number of years in the 80s. Well, she she brings her uh, her early '80s cleavagey presence to the film. It's a very special time. <laughs> Formative years. <laughs> Formative years. Um, losing my train of thought here. No, I was just uh, you know just 
just top to bottom, what a cast. Like, yeah. I... And you don't expect that. Like, it, I don't even know that it would be necessary in a film like this, but watching it in retrospect and knowing what all of those people became or were in or had been... Yeah. Uh, uh, Ernest Borgnine had won an Oscar for Marty, uh, you know, about 25 years before this. Sure. Huge TV actor. Yeah. Uh, no, if, if I can complain about one casting choice, it is Donald Pleasance as the president. <laughs> He's not believable at all as the president. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, Do- Donald Pleasance, for those who don't know, uh, is the he is a British actor, uh, best known for playing uh, Dr. Loomis in John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, allegedly... Pleasance had developed a backstory that he pitched to John Carpenter about why he would be an American president with a British <laughs> accent. And John Carpenter shot that idea down and said, no one cares, Donald. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> I guess the point was to make him kind of an unlikable president, too. Well, he compensates for his Britishness by talking really slowly. Like, I think that's how he thinks American presidents speak, and maybe he's not wrong, but he enunciates every word. <laughs> well, you know, that's how they do it. And it's like, or, uh, well, Bill Pullman, he always uh, uh, punctuated everything he said with uh, the thumb pressed to his knuckles. <laughs> this is our Independence Day. I guess it does nothing if I'm just you're just hearing me say it. <laughs> I you know, but rest assured, he is pressing the thumb to the knuckle. Yeah, um, I like the big Easter egg he uses as an escape pod. Yes, <laughs> big or, or reddish orange Easter egg cards the president. So uh, let's talk about Snake himself. Yeah. Because he's he's become one of the iconic film characters uh, yeah. of of this period in action. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't he does he's not in a lot of action scenes though. No, he it's mostly him kind of sneaking around or shooting out a wall to jump through it to escape. There's a lot of there's a lot of suggested terror. Uh, there's lots of scenes of you know for example he's in the uh, the, co- the abandoned coffee shop the chock full of nuts mm-hmm. uh, and you see a lot of shadows of this crowd chasing him as they pass by the window but they don't actually come in and do anything to him until much later yeah so I, there's lots there's lots of ways of them working around that six million dollar budget yeah and he's perpetually grumpy but. The movie, yeah, they they didn't have enough money to do big, long action scenes. I think the movie works for that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of sneaking. And where would this influence something <laughs> down the line, Casey? Well, I don't know. Uh, a little video game series. Uh, you might have heard of it. Yeah, yeah no, it, it, this this definitely influenced the uh, the Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear in general series. Uh, also, in Metal Gear Solid 2, Snake makes a direct reference by referring to his alter ego as Iroquois Pliskin, Iroquois being Snake. Yep. Now, you know what the premise of this movie reads like an 80s arcade beat-em-up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bad this guys is... have kidnapped the president. Are you a bad enough dude? <laughs> I was about to say this is bad, dudes. Yeah. I I was really disappointed though that at the end of the game, uh, Snake Plissken didn't go and eat hamburgers with President Pleasance. <laughs> if they had a, a cameo of the president looking like Donald Pleasance, I that just would have been the best. <laughs> Kojima can still make another prequel. Sure. Get to it, sir. Yeah. Uh, 
Now, as far as Escape from New York goes, um, Snake is given a time limit of a single night. They say 24 hours, but by the time he's there, it's 22. And he's informed that he has been injected with a bomb. Well, that reminds me of the Simpsons joke where Homer gets poisoned by bad blowfish at a Japanese restaurant. And the doctor goes, Mr. Simpson, you have 24 hours to live. I'm sorry, 22. I kept you waiting so long. <laughs> and this happens here, too. <laughs> it was 24, but you, but you argued with me about whether or not you were going to take the mission. So now it's 22, jerk. <laughs> because Snake is trying to be too cool, Breeze. In fact, he's like, call me Snake. Yeah. Like every time anybody says anything to him, call me Snake. But he, I mean, a lot of Snake's mystique is built into characters recognizing him, even in this penal colony. Yeah, hey every, guys, it's Snake Pliskin. Yeah, there's like a, an air of uh, legend about him, you know. Pliskin. You know, I, I, I guess that uh, you know that eye patch suggests a mysterious past. Yeah. I have to mention this. I mentioned how grumpy Snake is, but I thought one of the most unintentionally hilarious things in the movie is the scene where after he's been wounded in the leg with a crossbow and had to fight a giant pro wrestler guy with a spiked baseball bat, he has to walk up the entire World Trade Center. He realizes he can't leave that way and then he has to walk all the way back down the World Trade Center. (laughs) <laughs> the tallest buildings in Manhattan. <laughs> just imagining how grumpy he was. <laughs> that, that's, thinking about it that way adds an extra layer to it. It's just like, God, you should, you should want to kill everybody he sees now. <laughs> <laughs> or, or have dropped dead somewhere on those steps along the way. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to talk about the giant wrestler. Yeah. Uh, that is an actual wrestler. That is Ox Baker, who is a famous heel from the uh, territory days of wrestling. Uh, prime, most of his work was pre-WWF. Uh, he, so he was a champion pretty much in all across the country in the different... Because uh, prior to WWF's uh, or a WWWF, uh, Vince McMahon Sr.'s organization at the time, uh, prior to their success, wrestling was regimented in different regions mm. uh so you know different states and territory different states had d- their own territories uh for example uh virginia through the carolinas was the mid-atlantic wrestling scene owned by uh, jim crockett um and there's there's a whole lot more of those uh when wwf came along they had a lot of money they bought out all the talent and killed the territories uh yeah he but- this guy and Snake definitely have, like, one of those extreme matches. They just needed... I kind of wish they passed him, like, uh, fluorescent bulbs <laughs> and just had a table full of glass in the middle of the ring. Well, this this was pre-Japanese deathmatch style, so... Uh, <laughs> but, maybe uh, it inspired a little bit. Sure, sure. But um, Ox Baker is infamous because he was a champion in a lot of those regional promotions. Uh, he has always been a... pretty much always been a heel... Mm-hmm. Always been very popular, uh, and he's known for innovating a move called the heart punch, in which he uh, lifts one of your arms up over your head and punches you really hard in the chest. Uh, they the storyline they always gave that move was that he was hitting 
in sort of a pre-Fist of the North Star universe, he was hitting pressure points and would kill you if he hit you too hard. Uh, this actually led to two people dying uh, days after a day or days after wrestling Ox Baker. Oh God. And for storyline reasons, and for wrestling being as carny as it was back in the eight, back in the sixties and seventies, uh, them pretending that. Ox had actually killed those men in the ring and just incorporating it into his storylines. Oh my god. You know, uh, I, he, yeah. he killed Alberto Torres in the 1971 and he killed uh, Ray Gunkel. But he didn't kill either of them. They both had heart attacks. Standard heart attacks days later. But, you know, it was just too convenient for Ox to be a heel and come into town and go, I killed your heroes. God. I'm sure the families were just ecstatic about that. Well, apparently he didn't like it either, but a big part of wrestling back then was what uh, they referred to as protecting the business, which meant that, hey, if some guy comes up to you at a show and you're a heel and he talks shit to you, you have to beat his ass. Like it's because you have to protect the business. Wrestling is not fake. Do you see how I just beat you up? And if you got beat up, they would if you got beat up by a fan, they would fire you. Oh, wow. So, so he had to, yeah, he had to make the mystique. But I, yeah, you're right. I imagine the families are none too pleased by this. And allegedly, Ox wasn't too crazy about it either. But uh, just like Terry Funk, he doesn't wrestle a Funk schedule, but he is, as of December 2013, a champion in some indie promotion at the age of 79. Oh gosh, you know, I I get the uh, vibe that Carpenter is a big wrestling fan because he did mention that he wrote the character of Mata. And uh, they live specifically for Rowdy, uh, Rowdy Piper. Sure. Because sure. he said he and his wife went to, um, maybe it might have been Adrian Barbeau, went to WrestleMania to tell him personally about the role. Right, right. Well, and, you know, and Ox Baker is a pretty distinctive looking guy with those crazy eyebrows and that Ming the Merciless mustache he's got. Yeah. Uh, which he still has. There's like a, a King of Fighters character that looks just like him. And uh, I can't think of his name. Are you thinking of uh, Chang? Yeah, yeah. With the, with the big iron ball? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, pretty close. But uh, anyway. Anyhow. About, uh, we always somehow revert to fighting games and wrestling <laughs> on the show. <laughs> and Metal Gear Solid Metal. in two episodes so far. So, yeah, we're, we're on a good roll here. <laughs> Podcast hosts in their 20s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exposed to way too much uh, media. That's right. But uh, this was kind of, this movie, going back to Escape from New York, I, I think it's like smack dab in the middle of Carpenter's golden era, mm-hmm. which really began with, uh, well, you could argue Assault and Precinct 13, but I really think Hall- from Halloween and then... I think the peak of his golden period ending with uh, They Live. Sure. Yeah, basically the 80s. Right, yeah. I, he has a couple good movies in the 90s, but generally speaking, he never really got out of the 80s. Nah, well, you know what? These movies are so fun and so rewatchable, but I'm totally cool with it. Sure. Uh, yeah, I don't think he ever made a bad one with Kurt Russell. Yeah, and even like the lesser ones, like The Fog, mm-hmm. I still really love that movie, so... I think that movie's a blast. And Carpenter said, well, I always intended that one to be a kid's movie. I think it should have been PG. Was it PG? I don't know. I don't know. He said he wanted that one to be a kid's movie. I don't think he succeeded completely there. No. (laughs) 
Nope. Um, I I want to compliment one of the things I want to compliment this movie in particular uh, is I really enjoyed the little flourishes they gave to uh, the setting itself to really make me feel like I was in a colony of deranged people. Mm. Um, for example, I love that they still have Broadway plays. Yeah. <laughs> but they're kind of just warped Broadway plays put on by inmates. Yeah, it's just a it's just a drag show. <laughs> Yeah, or uh, I, I also love um, Ernest Borgnine's cabbie who picks Snake up while he's fleeing guys in an alley and just chucks a Molotov cocktail at the window to cut him off at the pass. No, no, he has a special trap door just for chucking Molotov cocktails in the roof of the car. Yes. <laughs> like he's uh, modified his cab to be a, a demolition vehicle in the days since. Everyone has adapted and just accepted roles, given that they, they can. Like, gas, gasoline is scarce, but for whatever reason, cabbie is a cabbie. Yeah. I like Isaac Hayes' car, because it has chandeliers yes! on the hood. Yeah, he's got two chandeliers on the hoods, and, <laughs> and he's, got a, he's got an actual full-size disco ball hanging from his <laughs> rearview mirror. It's like, it's the party car, man. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, fitting for the Duke of New York. Yeah, he's the Duke. Nobody sees the Duke. And I hated that little, oh god, that little creepy skinny guy with the hedgehog hair. Oh yeah, the Harry Dean Stanton knives in the gut. Finally, he looks like he looks a lot like one of the splatter punks from uh, RoboCop. Yeah, RoboCop Three. Yeah, it's that same. It's that same awful neon colored spike punk aesthetic that died at that time. I don't even think that was popular by the time this movie was being filmed. No, that was that was like Sex Pistols era, which was well less which, than which a is, year. Which was probably about the time it was written. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, seventy six. So, um, well, never mind the bollocks. That was like seventy six, seventy seven. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So I, but yeah, that that had ceased to be cool by now already. Yeah, it was a joke, and maybe that guy was just this leftover punk rocker. Left. That's true, yeah. Who who knows how long he's been in this prison? He doesn't know. It's still cool to him. He he broke into CBGBs. And, yeah. And raided their wares. Yeah. Well, I think that was in Queens, CBGBs. I don't know. I don't know the boroughs that well. Hey, he's escaping New York. Yeah, <laughs> the boroughs right. are there. And, you know, like we mentioned, like there's really not too many big action scenes in the movie. It's really just Snake evading things and just, where the hell is the president? Let's get the hell out of here. And a couple a couple false leads, like him following that, uh, him following the, the president's remote collar and just finding a deranged bum. That deranged... I knew if I wore this, I was going to be the president. I knew it. That was the uh, deranged bum that's like a deranged bum in every movie. Okay. He was in They Live as two characters, remember? Oh, yeah. He's the rich guy at the end. He's like, they just want to make a buck, you guys. But uh, I wanted to compliment this movie about how well-paced it is. Mm -hmm. It just moves from thing to thing to thing. And there's uh, the woman inside of the chock full of nuts you think could be like a little bit of a fringe benefit, romantic interest for Snake. She just gets pulled under underground by those uh, creepy marauder shadow guys. Yeah. Like, nope, Snake, you got to keep moving, bro. It's, yeah, it's it's just there for that initial startle of him realizing that he's not alone in the building, and then let's I've, keep this moving along. I, and I think I think part of that frantic pacing has to do with the twenty-two hour time limit. 
Yeah, and the budget too. Like, mm-hmm. like you just get snapshots of all the the various weirdos and sections of Manhattan Island in this movie. And sure, it just works so well. It's it's like yeah, Snake. He's he doesn't have any time to waste here because the end of those twenty two hours, there's explosive nanites, which is also a very Metal Gear Solid type of plot. <laughs> Let's let's be real. Kojima has watched this movie many times. <laughs> yes. I mean, Snake even has an eye patch now. So. Yeah. Iroquois. Are you Delta Force? <laughs> nah, I can't do David Hayter's voice. David Hayter. David Hayter is a, is his voice now is a parody of itself. So I don't think even he can do that voice. <laughs> he was wasn't he fired as Snake? He's not. Uh, yeah, he's not Snake in the new game. Uh, it's Kiefer Sutherland. Oddly enough. They're going extra Hollywood on us. We'll see. I, I still have my doubts, but this isn't a Metal Gear podcast, so... Yeah. The, you know, this practically is Metal Gear poly, uh, podcast, just, you know... All right, well, then I, I'm just going to go ahead and say my theory, then. I just... I mean, the, the new game that came out is just a, like, an hour to two hour long prologue uh, to the to the actual five that's coming out later. Uh, now, if you played Metal Gear Solid 2, you remember, mm. they kind of swerved you. You thought Snake was the main character of that game. Bam, you're playing as Raiden. Uh, yeah, the big shell was the main game. Right. So I feel like I feel like this could be a situation where, um, you know, the, the Kiefer Sutherland uh, big boss, uh, something happens to him, and then we're playing as younger Snake, voiced by David Hayter. But hey, this episode's going to be a time capsule that when people listen to it in a year or two, they're, they're going to hear it. It's, it's going to date itself just like Escape from New York. And they're going to laugh at me for being totally wrong. The distant future of late 2014. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, and just like a Metal Gear mission, Snake loses all of his weapons. Mm-hmm. He gets his shirt ripped off and he's kind of tortured for a bit. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> you got to be injured, Snake. And your covert way of breaking in, like, for there's, like, the green lights on Snake's face. I almost expected, like, a, a codec message. Yeah. Well, he, he might as well have codecs. I mean, yeah. He still has contacts with uh, Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. Follow me on this frequency. And he makes, a, he makes friends with a ragtag band, including Harry Dean Stanton, who is uh, terrific here, as always. <sighs> Was Harry Dean Stanton ever not terrific? Uh, no, but I, I especially love him in Repo Man. Yeah, I I liked him as uh, I forget he was in the uh, Dillinger, which was God that was like what seventy two or something. It was like ten years before this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been great at least for forty years. So terrific actor. I haven't seen Repo Man yet. Is that Bloodbath and Beyond material? Um, not necessarily, but it could just be a fun movie to talk about. Okay. It's a cult film. I think I think people will make allowances if we talk about cult films. Yeah, and, well, Escape from New York has proved to be a cult film. Like, I think most of John Carpenter's filmography. Mm-hmm. Well, I, let me ask you, like, because we said there's not a lot of action here, so why do you think this movie has the enduring legacy it does? I just think the image of Snake is just so memorable. I think the premise, especially at the time, was really unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only other post-apocalyptic movie at the time was the original Mad Max. Mad, uh, Road Warrior wasn't out yet. That was a year later. Sure. And it, it just rings with a lot, rung with a lot of people, and it's really quotable. 
um, it's like quotable in this in like a simple way, like um, you know, like they live is, or uh, even Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yeah, I love all of those movies, and it, it's just fun, kind of no nonsense movie making, and sure. Carpenter said guys like Howard Hawks and John Sturgis are his biggest influences. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least director-wise. The Hawks' influence is pretty obvious in both uh, Assault on Precinct 13 and The Thing. Oh, yeah. And, and John Sturgis, just with his big use of uh, the widescreen and big empty spaces, it's sort of utilizing that and telling his story. I, I think I think that's true here, too. I mean, a, a lot of the imagery in this movie utilizes the big empty spaces of abandoned New York. I mean, that's some of the most eye-catching stuff in the movie. Yeah. It's just Snake walking on these abandoned, darkened streets with yeah. all the, with all the power off except for spotlights. And, and like Hawks, Carpenter made a lot of movies that were just lean, mean entertainment. They just keep moving. <clears throat> There's no pretension about them. Uh, they don't take themselves too seriously. Is what they I'm usually saying. they usually hit a 90 minute runtime. Yeah. Which man, I I gotta tell you, I really miss movies that are 90 minutes long. Yeah, I know uh, David Cronenberg prides himself. I'm never making a movie uh, that close to two hours. He says ninety minutes. That's the sweet spot. I feel like I feel like now two hours and thirty minutes is the default that everybody aims for. Yeah, with all these big superhero movies, all of the uh, you know the Chris Nolan Batman movies are probably the biggest offender because those are <clears throat> not too far from excuse me, uh, three hours even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's exactly it. That's the new standard. Everybody, like, I I actually dread now going to movie theaters because I know how long everything is gonna be. Yeah. <laughs> I I, I have I have time for two three hour movies when I'm at home when I can pause it and do something else. But the idea of sitting and watching a three hour movie in a theater is daunting. Uh, I have I have to be in the right frame of mind at it, the time. It, there's like a very small handful of three hour movies. I will always be able to watch. It's La Dolce Vita, Godfather 1 and 2. Uh, I'm having trouble thinking of others right now, but it's mainly those. For, for me, it's uh, it's the Sergio Leone westerns. Yeah. Um, I was going to say Brazil, but that's only a little over two hours. So. Okay. Yeah, but it, it has to be, what I'm saying is like, one of the big ones. One sure. of the golden gods of cinema. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I, I, I complain. I'll still go see those big superhero movies with their bloated, you know, screen times. But sometimes I wish they could trim a little bit of that fat. I don't, I don't know why so many movies have to be that long now. And I'm wondering if, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's some sort of marketing sense to it more than just like it'll be great if we have a movie this long. Yeah. Um. You know, and so I think modern action adventure movies can learn a lot just from Escape from New York, and that you, you can make <clears throat> great entertainment at ninety minutes, mm-hmm. you know, give or take, and you know, just have an efficiently told story. You yes. know, people love that. That will always endure with people. Sure. And this is just and, that, a, and that you can do it all in six million dollars. Yeah, six million dollars, or you know, whatever the probably extremely modest inflation would be for it which you know even 
even more than a 90 minute runtime, a movie that doesn't a, a blockbuster action film that doesn't cost upwards of 60 million dollars seems like an alien concept anymore. Oh, hello, romantic comedy that doesn't cost 100 million dollars seems foreign. Um, yeah, but but the thing is, you can make do with great character actors. I I love great character actors because they're not like the most handsome or pretty people on the planet. They look no, like real people. Yes, and they're they're known for their distinctive faces and their their acting styles. And I I don't know. I I just enjoy them all coming together in this film. Yeah, and, and Ernest Borgnine is kind of rare because he's a leading man and a character actor at the same time. Mm-hmm. Sure. So have you, have you ever seen Marty? Yeah. Uh, just yeah, just a great, great movie. And uh, one of the big things about that movie was that his character is not a handsome guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of down on his luck with love and everything. But that's sure. for, that's not Blood, Bath, and Beyond material. Oh, I, I think he's terrific here, Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. In fact, I think he has one of the most enjoyable performances in the movie. Yeah. Uh, as a character <laughs> that is just so happy to be to be here just to be alive and yeah, just just drive to be his alive. cab yeah he, he he takes a lot of pleasure out of driving his cab around this deserted wasteland <laughs> yeah i i like little touches with harry dean stanton he plays brain he's the intellectual for the duke mm-hmm. he has like an oil pump inside of his library <laughs> <laughs> i just love that little feature it's just in the background it's sure. like it's just to imply, okay, that's how they get fuel for, you know, the handful of, you know, operational motor vehicles inside yeah, Manhattan. All of those things are fun. I, I, I wanted to see even more of that. I wanted to see even more of uh, this world and how all these people who have been in this prison for so long where they've been abandoned by proper authorities and law, yeah. uh, how they've coped. And I, I always, I kind of found that one of the most interesting aspects. The little glimpses we get are great. I just wish I could see more of it. So if anybody wants to write, you know, an expanded novelization or something of Escape from New York, that's my one suggestion. Just give me a lot more of the lives of the people in this place. Yeah, I mean, there's been talk for years now about a remake of this movie, and it was about to happen with Gerard Butler as Snake, which I thought was a terrible idea. Yeah. Um. But that tells you the time period this was considered. I mean, he was he was the it guy of like what two thousand five. Two thousand seven. That was when like three hundred. Uh, okay. Three hundred came out. So. Gosh, three hundred was that long ago? Well, you know, there there have been talks of remaking most of John Carpenter's movies, and you know, if they haven't already, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, Carpenter is not uh, opposed to this because he has made it clear that he is happy never working again in his life, and that his favorite job is. Uh, reading in the trades that someone is remaking a John Carpenter movie, sticking his hand out and having a check magically land in it. You know, he knows his best years are, you know, well behind. Oh, sure. I mean, we just said he never got out of the 80s as a director. It's like, I don't see uh, Big Trouble and Little China getting remade. I really don't see that being remade no. effectively. I, 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 I think that would be considered too offensive. <laughs> yeah. As, and, you know, and especially after something like 47 Ronin Bombs, I think that, uh, and Avatar The Last Airbender, I think Hollywood is steering clear of anything with Asian motifs. Uh, well, that's for the best. Yeah. It's for the best. If they can't get it right, don't do it at all. So, if they do remake this movie, who would you conceivably see in the, the Snake Plissken role? Oh, man, I... <laughs> I don't know. I would say... 
Oh no, I I have no idea. I I think you and I probably talked about this before. Just you know, whatever. I thought CM Punk would actually <laughs> make a pretty good snake. You you also we also I think we suggested him for John Nada. Yeah, they live for you too. He's kind of a John Carpenter looking guy to me because he looks like a regular dude. For the most lots part. of tattoos. There's lots of tattoos. Yeah, and I get that vibe from Kurt Russell. Like like he's clearly like a fit guy, but. He doesn't look like a male model or anything. He's just, for the most part, I think, an average-looking guy. I, I like that about him. I would cast Benicio Del Toro ten years ago in something in this movie, but I couldn't. I can't put my finger on which character. I just feel like he'd fit so well. Yeah, he should have been Mo Three Stooges. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Who, what was the casting there? It was, it was like Jim Carrey is curly. Yep. And I think Sean Penn is Larry. Yeah, <laughs> Sean Penn, or it was a. Uh... Oh man, I f- why have I forgotten his name? I don't know. I I just remember that when that Wolfman movie came out a few years ago, and Benicio del Toro had like a Mo haircut. I was like, he's gonna be Mo. It's gonna be hilarious. <laughs> I, now, see, I would have been way more excited about that movie. Yeah, I know. I would have too. Oh, Paul Giamatti was considered for Larry. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Just imagine the dream Stooges cast of Giamatti. Hey, you guys. (laughs) Giamatti, Del Toro, and Jim Carrey. (laughs) Wow, we've gone really off the rails with this episode. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's really not a whole lot more I want to add to Escape from New York other than just go out and see it. Sure. Seriously, and uh, I really I like the sequel, Escape from L.A. I like that one too. See, I, I haven't seen that one yet, but I know that Jeffrey Combs is in it, so I want to see it. And Bruce Campbell. Oh, there we go. All right yeah. then. Uh, so Escape from L.A. will definitely do at some point. Yeah. Well, is there anything? Any recommendations you want to add to it, or? Um. No, I'll just say overall, I, I found this to be uh, quite an enjoyable movie. Um, for all the reasons that you listed, and I recommend it to anybody that's interested in expanding their knowledge of John Carpenter films, or uh, 80s action in general. Yeah, just one of the best 80s action characters, and that he's um, kind of unique. He's not the guy, he's not Rambo sent there to kill everything in sight. He's not Terminator. He's just a guy sent on a mission he does not want to be on. He's only interested in himself at the time, but you can't help but like him. Sure. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, okay, this is spoiler territory, uh, yeah. so if you, if you guys have heard most of the review now, uh, you can you can kindly, you know, plug your ears for a minute. Um, what, why do, what do you think, why do you think Snake ripped up the cassette tape that could save the world at the end of the film? Uh, maybe because he wanted to just have a final middle finger to throw at the man. Uh, yeah. No, no, I, I feel like that's probably dead on. I feel like that's the only re- like. I know that was a that was a question I saw somebody ask on a IMDb at some point, and I didn't. I was like, oh, is that really a point of contention? But I, I agree with you completely. It is really just that they wanted to uh, just have him have an act of defiance. You guys put a bomb in me, so now I'm gonna replace uh, th- this tape that could say that could end all war. 
And you know what? I don't think Snake ever believed Lee Van Cleef saying that it could save the world. I guess you don't care about that Snake. I think Snake is just such a cynical guy. He's like, really? A tape recording is just going to completely change the, the scope of world politics. You know, I was a special forces soldier. I've seen what the world is like, and it's mm-hmm. bullshit. You know, I... Now that now, you, now that we go over that, I can totally see your uh, your idea of casting for him working. Yeah. Oh, CM Punk. <laughs> it's the same vibe. Yep. It's the same vibe. That's that that vibe is what made him famous. <laughs> yep. So uh, hey, uh, whoever whoever today's John Carpenter is going to be, go look that guy up. He's not wrestling right now. Yeah, he's down for some action movies. Better than the Miz. <laughs> seen oh. It. Oh, my friend, you have no idea. I, I appeared on a uh, wrestling podcast called uh, Fan to Fan with a buddy of mine named uh, Kevin Ford. That episode's going to go up at some point in uh, probably uh, later this week or next month. Yeah. Um, and on that show, he interviews wrestling fans about their fandom. And, of course, the topic of this show came up. And Kevin, the host, mentioned that he was very interested in us doing the Marine movies. <sighs> Stop. The third of which, and the the upcoming fourth, star the Miz. <laughs> so, I, uh, I so uh, you know in in a in a uh, peace offering, a olive branch, I, I told him that we would graciously do that at some point. Um, well, I also I also told him that if I mentioned it to you, would you would audibly groan, which you did not disappoint. <laughs> um, but and, I'll uh, do it. I'll do it. Sure, sure, and that uh, and that we'd probably uh, have him on as a guest for some of those because he's a very knowledgeable podcaster about wrestling. Absolutely. Then. So look forward to that. Uh, you can get that show on the um, Pro Wrestling Ponderings Network, uh, PWP Podcasts on iTunes. Uh, I think that episode should appear probably in the next few days if you uh, can't get enough of my dulcet tones. I will check it out. All right. All right, well, and also I wanted to say uh, we we had planned to do um, the raid two at the end of the month, mm-hmm. but as we mentioned last time, anytime we make plans, God laughs. <laughs> so so uh, they said it was going to open wide on March twenty eighth. What they really meant was it is widely going to open in New York and Los Angeles. <laughs> so the rest of us have to wait until mid April. Yeah, so about two weeks from now we can finally do. The Raid 2. But until then, join us next week when we talk about something. Something else? (laughs) I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Bert Cody. Stay bloody, my friends.